0: It can't be turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a pool at the bottom.
1: <laughs> and, uh, oh, man. Yeah. I'm using that as the teaser quote for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to episode 46 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert.
0: I'm David Rosenthal.
1: And we are your hosts. Today we are covering an acquisition that the tech audience cares a lot about, even though it's not really a tech company. Nestle's acquisition of Blue Bottle. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> shockwaves have gone through Silicon Valley.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. There have been lines around the block that are forming their own lines around the block uh, just to hear the news. <laughs> uh, so
0: great. Where, where will the VCs and entrepreneurs congregate now?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the, what's the sort of like islandish one, uh, uh, fills, fills. fills. Yeah. fourth well, wave of coffee.
0: Fourth wave. We'll get into it.
1: (laughs) We will. We will. For our sponsor this episode, we have ZoomInfo. ZoomInfo is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein.
0: Totally. This is an amazing under-the-radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of ZoomInfo, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called DiscoverOrg from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so, they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then in 2019, Discover.org actually acquired Zoom Info, another big player in the business data
1: space. Yes, they kept the Zoom Info name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit, and they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data, and this data fuels ZoomInfo's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal streamline their operations, and build the best team possible. And best of all, it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster.
0: So if you're in B2B and you're wondering, how can we drive more revenue and who's not? How can we find, acquire, and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now? How do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible? How do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money? ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data.
1: Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free, You want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see the ZoomInfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you.
0: Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to ZoomInfo. Well,
1: David, that's all I've got for for pre-show.
0: All right. Well... Before we dive in, I, I was I was thinking about this episode, and it's kind of funny. We've got these series of like mini series here on Acquired. We've done uh, we did the Disney uh, trifecta, um, and then the fourth, of course, with uh, with BAM Tech. Um, we've done sports. We did the LA Clippers. That was <laughs> that was out there, but but fun. Uh, we've done a bunch of gaming episodes. And now we've got our second coffee episode on the heels of the Starbucks episode. So, uh,
1: well, this is a, this is a, you know, primarily Seattle dominant, uh, podcast. So we, we do have to do multiple coffee episodes, <laughs> <laughs> but next we'll have to do the Seahawks next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so
0: coffee, we talked, uh, quite a bit in the starbucks episode with dan levitan about waves of coffee and the, the parallels between the coffee world and the tech world um and we alluded to third wave coffee um which really is kind of the reaction to starbucks uh starbucks being second wave if if the first wave was kind of folgers and maxwell house and you know brew at home coffee The second wave being Starbucks, uh, an experience, a place you go to. Uh, The third wave is really all about the quality of the coffee. People, you know, it it is it is really the origin of hipsterdom. (laughs) Starbucks sucks. It's super corporate. We're going to focus on the artisanal quality of
1: it's burnt it's dark. It's, you know, no care put into it. It's a, a factory. Everything is made exactly the same, you know, call it operationally efficient and, 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 you know, praise their business model or, you know, uh, hate on it because it's, it's systematized, but, um, it's definitely, definitely a reaction to the, the mass market success of Starbucks.
0: Yeah. And so third wave places like, um, a uh, counterculture was one of the first in, in Durham, Durham, North Carolina, Stumptown in, in, down in Portland, uh, which is now owned by Pete's, interestingly, uh, or Intelligentsia, which I think started in Chicago, is also now majority owned by Pete's um, Cafe Vita in Seattle, all these folks. They really focus on the drink itself and, and probably arguably nobody focused more on the drink than Blue Bottle. Uh so let's dive into to Blue Bottle. So it was founded by a, a very interesting interesting guy named James Freeman and uh highly recommend we'll we'll link to this in the show notes but he did the stanford uh entrepreneurial thought leader talk he gave a talk there last year uh really fun to listen to he basically let's just say he starts it with an analogy to merce cunningham and john cage the sort of Avant-garde, you know, modern dance choreographer, Merce Cunningham, and, and his partner, John Cage, who is an avant-garde musician, and their work together as an analogy for his whole talk. And then he goes on to, to quote Sartre and, and Proust. Very philosophical. Um,
1: Honestly, David, and, one of my favorite like things about this show is learning about the insane and talented and driven people that start these companies. Like, it is, there are no normal people that start enormous companies. <laughs> no. Uh,
0: and James is is no exception. He, unlike most of the founders we talk about, he's definitely not an engineer, um, not even remotely connected with the tech world, except for the fact that he lived in the Bay Area. He was a freelance clarinetist, a classical musician who played the clarinet. And he did that for until his mid 30s. And then he he kind of woke up one day and he realized you know I, I, I'm never gonna be the best clarinetist um, and, and maybe I should find something else to do with my life and 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 what else could he do? He turns out he had this side hobby. Of roasting his own coffee beans in his oven at home, so he would he would buy beans and he would roast them at home in his kitchen in his oven. Uh, apparently, made lots of smoke, and and his his wife at the time was not a fan of this hobby. Um, but he he made these these beans, and and he would drink the coffee himself, and he would give it to his friends, and people loved it. And he thought, well, maybe I'll turn to coffee for my life. Uh, so he started in the early 2000s, he quits the music world, and uh, he lived in, I don't know if he actually lived in Oakland, or, or if he started the company Oakland, he was living in the Bay Area, um, starts Blue Bottle in Oakland, and the original business plan is that he's going to keep doing what he's doing, um, and and deliver beans to to people's houses, these great beans that he's roasted, you know, in his kitchen the day before. Uh, Will deliver them to his friends' houses, so it, it kind of sounds like an on-demand startup.
1: <laughs> truly, <laughs> he was truly, ahead of his time and, and and hilariously, you know that the part of the the business. Fast forward a little bit; they operate now. That's a coffee delivery service. They acquired another company to to do that called Tonks um, when they they sort of moved into a bit of a different uh, different sector.
0: Yep. So he, he's sort of the the company is back to its to its origins now with that acquisition. Later. But he, he does that for a little while and then and then they kind of realize like uh, probably not going to become a, a really large business if he's roasting, you know, <laughs> roasting coffee in, in no. his own kitchen. And it's um, hilarious
1: following the parallel to, to Starbucks like both started with this model of beans only and, you know, selling those and focusing exactly on, on that and then realizing, boy, there's this whole other, you know, retail coffee experience to be created.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and Freeman, sort of similar to, to the Starbucks story, um, where it wasn't the Starbucks founders who, who realized that there was this retail opportunity. Um, it was Howard Schultz. Freeman him, himself kind of stumbles into it. So in 2003, he signs a lease for a roastery so he can get it out of his kitchen and, and start roasting in a commercial space. And then it's not until 2005 that he actually opens up his first, uh, retail location, uh, which is in Hayes Valley in San Francisco. And it's in a friend's garage. So he has a friend who loves his coffee and, uh, his friend has this garage on a little side street in Hayes. And, um, says why don't you come open up a kiosk and actually instead of just selling beans uh sell coffee there james is is excited about this and and his sort of approach to coffee even though the name Blue Bottle comes from Blue Bottle Coffee in Vienna, which was one of Europe's first coffee houses, he's actually more influenced by the sort of Japanese style of coffee. So whereas Howard Schultz was influenced by his time in Italy and the Italian coffee houses, the whole approach of Blue Bottle is very, very Japanese centric. And, and the Japanese approach to coffee is very third wave. It's all about the very, very meticulously crafted, perfect cup of coffee, and James talks about this in his his ETL talk at Stanford. That uh, part of his inspiration is this this coffee shop in in Japan, where the first thing you do that the barista does when when you order a cup of coffee is they have a wall with all these cups on it, and and the barista he or she will will go look at the wall and decide which cup they're all different is perfect for you.
1: <laughs> wow, <laughs>
0: um, and uh, uh, and so that's the inspiration for Blue Bottle on it. And if listeners, if you've been to Blue Bottle, if you live in the Bay Area, I'm sure you have or or travel there often. This is the the anti Starbucks It is very austere. There is very little in these in the locations except for the coffee. There's no Wi-Fi. There are no power outlets. Uh, They do have some food, but very little. Um, It is truly all about the coffee. This, this idea of the cups, James also talks about uh, much later in, in the company's history, they had cups specifically made for uh, Blue Bottle. These are these are ceramic, you know, to stay cups. They they don't like doing to go cups, mm, of course. They um, are. That are the the cups are perfectly sized. They're not perfectly round. But they are sized exactly for the size drink that, that you get at Blue Bottle. There are no sizes. You just get, you know, you order whatever <laughs> it is you order, and it's one size. <laughs> David, I can't take uh, it. <laughs> it's so hipster. <laughs> uh, the, the synergies with the tech community are just too perfect.
1: <laughs> so you pay software engineers more money and more disposable income, and they want to be better than everyone else, and they want to buy more pretentious things they love coffee they need coffee to be productive i know <laughs> i'll sell them really
0: expensive coffee that they don't have to think about because they're thinking about writing the code so we it's, do the thinking for them but right. it's really good exactly
1: exactly it's like the steve jobs one outfit reduced cognitive load thing
0: exactly exactly <laughs> i mean that is that is blue bottle which is very different from phil's which we'll, we'll come back to in a minute phil's is the competing bay area chain
1: I should say, like Blue Bottle is freaking amazingly good. Like, I oh, the I, coffee is I'll, really good. I'll rip on it for like this whole episode, but um, you know, it's it's an unbelievable product.
0: It really is. I mean, you, you can't you know be from Seattle and not not appreciate good coffee, and it, and it is very good coffee. So after the kiosk, the first very little store in Hayes opens up. it really starts to take off it spreads kind of by word of mouth uh, they start to open more locations in the Bay Area then they go to New York City, they go to Los Angeles and then they go to Tokyo to Japan and and the sort of inspiration for all of it and so there's stores in all of these cities now um, but they start to grow fairly rapidly and in 2008 so this is, very early in kind of the rise of sort of the modern startup and and vc industry i mean arguably even maybe i would say before lots of capital uh the, the sort of modern series a and and beyond type startup they raise a venture round and they raise five million dollars from a firm called kohlberg ventures and chris sacca and
1: lowercase capital uh, this is just when chris is getting going that dude gets into everything Unfreaking believable! The nose on Chris saka to find those early stage. Amazing! It was a four million dollar fund, uh, it was just so tiny by today's standards.
0: But he was in everything: Blue Bottle, Uber, Twitter, um, and then many, bought many, up more.
1: a bunch more of Twitter that he could on the second market. So five
0: million dollar round uh, from kohlberg and and lowercase in two thousand eight. Then a few years later, in two thousand twelve, they raised a twenty million dollar round. Uh, led by Index Ventures uh, and Google Ventures, and then a whole bunch of other individuals. So Kevin Sistrom um, a number of other tech CEOs, Tony Hawk, the uh, skateboarding legend, <laughs> invests. I mean this this coffee. I mean this is the thing. I think we talked. We might have talked about this a little bit in the Starbucks episode. You're literally selling drugs <laughs> to yeah. your customers. Oh my god! Uh,
1: I, I was doing some. Uh, one of my favorite things to do research for this um, this podcast is to go look at all the core. Rest- responses to, um, reactions around the deal and sort of tease out what I think is, is a, a great point and, you know, th- things I want to bring up on the show. And there was one really great quote that I was going to wait to wait to say later, but, um, I think, I think is worth bringing up now from, from Daniel James on Cora in this $20 million round. The, the question was something around like, you know, why is blue bottle getting all this investment? What are the VCCs? And he goes, coffee is a legal, a, addictive, unregulated, psychoactive drug with cheap ingredients, premium pricing, and a huge worldwide growth market. Blue Bottle is a quality brand with a good team and a strong history of well-managed growth. To me, this seems much better than a VC bet with many consumer internet companies.
0: (laughs) I know. And it's so funny. I mean, I actually think, and I remember this round, the 2012 round, nobody really paid attention to the, the 2008 one, but the 2012 round, was like you know it was sort of similar when we were starting rover and people are like this is a sign of the apocalypse like airbnb for dogs <laughs> like who's gonna use that it was the same thing then it's like what are these VCs thinking like they're investing in a coffee company and and to be clear like there was never any even pretense that this was like gonna be an internet company it was like you know, James and blue, but they're like, no, this is the coffee company. (laughs) We, we make coffee. We have stores. People come, they buy the coffee, they drink it. Like there's, you know, we have a website. but
1: Like like reduce cogs (laughs) and, and like lower variable costs. Like, nope. Nope, none of that. Uh, no, no. <laughs> this
0: is a coffee company. <laughs> um, and people are like, why are these VCs investing in this? Turns out uh, they did well, and particularly that round uh, did very well. But we'll come back to all that.
1: It is worth pointing out like this super interesting, um, n- near self-fulfilling prophecy of this. The sort of Twitter family and Blue Bottle was, was joined at the hip very early, and they got a lot of sort of... Um, because they were both at least very early on incredibly product focused companies with like sort of super tasteful visionary founders, like they attracted the same sort of people and they, and they magnified each other. So you look at like, um, Sightglass that was a couple of uh, of early Blue Bottle folks that left to start their own thing. Like they, they co-founded that with Jack Dorsey and was an early pilot for using Square at that that location. And you see the types of people that were attracted to Blue Bottle as a product and as a lifestyle and and put money into it. I mean, it is like they, they, they just won over the most valuable segment as customers and then brought them on as investors.
0: Yeah, and this is something, I mean, we've talked about this on this show before, but like... Especially if you don't live in in the Bay Area or, or in Seattle or, or LA or, you know, you're not kind of in the ecosystem. It's easy to forget. You know, you read about these companies in the press. They become so valuable. They're almost like these celebrities. Like these are real people and these companies exist in real locations. So I don't know if it was the second, but the first sort of canonical blue bottle store, you know, larger than the kiosk that was in Hayes uh, was in Mint Plaza and mint plaza is like two blocks away from the twitter building (laughs) so like well you know where do all the twitter you know employees go when they want coffee like they go to the blue bottle in mint plaza and it's just like these ecosystems like everybody's you know everybody's right there and and that's how these things sort of feed on one another
1: you know, i I thought about this as like a customer acquisition strategy of um, if you have a company and you want people at another company to buy it for B two B purposes, like buy all the Facebook ads of the employees at that company, so that you can like get get their attention. You know, even even outside of typical channels. Like if you aren't right next to the Twitter building, but you're interested in doing, you know, attracting Twitter people, um, you know, could you could you target them all over the place uh, digitally as well as having a physical location there? Because I feel like, um, while Blue Bottle sort of pioneered that, I feel like that's no longer novel to, you know, put something right outside of uh, a, a company that. Anyway, to put, to put a yeah, physical location it's interesting. There. <laughs> okay. that,
0: that, that growth, growth hacking tactic doesn't work anymore. <laughs> could
1: you, could you be digitally close? Yeah.
0: Yeah, seriously. But it definitely worked for blue bottle. And I, and I think, I think biz stone is, was an investor. I don't know if Ev Williams was, uh, I don't, I don't think, you know, Jack was obviously an investor in, in glass, a competitor, but, um, um, but it, it, it worked. Uh, so 2014, they then raise another $25 million. And then in 2015, they raised $75 million from Fidelity. Uh, and that was like, wow, you know, this is like a lot of money from like a real, you know, public markets investor. And then they, they keep expanding, you know, within those cities that I mentioned before, but grow to, you know, over, over 30 stores throughout, the throughout both the country and, and in Japan. And then in surprise announcement uh in the middle of september and september 14th 2017 it is reported that nestle comes in and the, the large conglomerate and buys out a majority stake in the company for reported 425 million dollars we don't know the exact number but it's been pretty widely reported that they paid about 425 million and that was for 68 percent of the company so they bought out the investors and james and the rest of the management team are keeping their stake so they keep 32 percent of the company its own separate board, uh, but all the investors are bought out. Uh, so the valuation on the company is six hundred and twenty-five million, assuming that the four hundred and
1: twenty-five million figure is correct.
0: And here we are.
1: Pretty amazing. I mean, I wonder. The first thing that comes to mind is: Did the founders keep all their shares? Was there a little bit of a secondary there, where they took money off the table? They had to have taken something, right? Like they they had to um
0: i I don't know for sure but they may not have Uh, there had been some secondaries along the way um so i believe some of the money from some of the later rounds was uh secondary sales that the founders and and management team were were taking money off the table um so i actually don't know in this case whether whether nestle paid out anything to any of the any of the employees
1: yeah well i will say you know as um I, for lots and lots of reasons, um, believe that full acquisitions are better than these sort of majority buyouts, um, particularly for, for startups like this. I mean, they're a 40-store retail location, but you know, early-ish mid-stage company. But if you're going to do it in this manner where you're not acquiring the entire company, I love the idea of it running independently and the founders still having a ton of skin in the game to make this thing you know, grow in valuation. You know, there's sort of an interesting thing of like, uh, it has to stay a separate company, like, like, think about this, how, if you're those founders, do you think about how your shares get valued now? Like, there's there's not really a competitive market to do the next round, it's not going to, um, like there's not a market to value your company, and it's certainly not anywhere near getting valued on a reasonable uh, uh, sort of price to earnings ratio. So are you hoping that at some point, Nestle just decides to buy you out? Is it actually in their best interest to do that? I love the incentive. I'm curious on the mechanics of how that works.
0: I think you're hitting on all the right questions here, Ben. I think part of the reason this happened as it did is, you know, I have to wonder, I don't know anybody at Blue Bottle, you know, personally, but Freeman and Brian Meehan, who's the CEO, he, he, Came in and took over as CEO a number of years ago, uh, but Freeman's still very very involved. They both were very vocal um, about saying they never wanted to go public. They didn't think being public made sense for Blue Bottle as a company, and it also just was something they weren't interested in. And yet the company continued to grow, but but at the same time they'd raised all this money, and in particular in some of these later rounds, you know, I'm bringing in folks like Fidelity. Like Fidelity is a mutual fund; <laughs> they're a public company investor like they you know uh, they they want to return all the investors want to return but particularly them and they want liquidity and so i can only imagine the tension that must have been building as they were making these decisions to take these partners on along the way these in partners as investors um who just had sort of fundamentally different goals than what it sounds like james and the team did
1: yeah. Okay. So here's the question is, you know, did that dichotomy just continue to grow and grow and grow where they were diametrically opposed to going public? They were taking on investors that needed them to go public or needed to have a big liquidity event and in a reasonable time frame. And like they sort of were in a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is the question. And and I think the question for both for Blue Bottle and for us in terms of in the show, like looking at at what's going on in, in the tech world. Like Blue Bottle, you know, we were joking in the beginning of, of the show that <laughs> it is unapologetically not a tech company, but this type of dynamic is rampant these days. I mean, so many founders of tech companies have raised all this money and yet are, you know, adamant that they never wanna be public. And that a lot of them also say they don't wanna sell the company either. So like, what are you gonna do? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, seems like that would have been a nice thing to be aware of upon investing. <laughs> <laughs> it like, does
0: seem that way. It does seem that
1: way. Um, and it's so funny. It's also so... Uh, is uh, that lip service, it, David? Like, is it like how if you want to run for president, you're supposed to say, like, I'm not interested in being president and then like you reluctantly do it so you don't seem power hungry? Like, is, is it like, oh, you know, we never want to sell out. And then like you inspire your employees and you're mission driven forever. And then until the day that it happens, it's never going to happen.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could say so, but then like, you know, we've talked about this in so many episodes, you know, whether uh, about Snap and or about Facebook, um, you know, these companies, the majority of them, obviously not Snap and Facebook, but have been private for so long now and they just keep staying. So, you know, Uber, Airbnb and all these companies, uh, many, many others. Um, certainly could be public companies and and probably should be. But the founders are, for whatever reason, either delaying or or even, you know, saying they don't want to. But I think it it also, like, there's a tension here. I mean, on the one hand, I think we've been painting it for the last few minutes as bad, or at least that this is a a disconnect, which it is. But on the other hand, if you go back to sort of what Blue Bottle is and this whole third wave of coffee <laughs> which we're using as an analogy for you know the the state of the tech world right now does it make sense for blue bottle to be a public company i mean it makes sense for starbucks because starbucks goal is to be everywhere and on every corner but if blue bottle's goal is to be about the cup of coffee <laughs> and what is actually in the cup does it make sense to be as big uh, i don't know
1: Yeah, I mean Blue Bottle has 40 locations, right? Like they they have plenty of growth ahead of them if they want to. I mean Starbucks has twenty-four thousand locations. You know, you don't need to be a public company to be a a forty location coffee shop. I'm actually very curious too. They also have this this online business selling directly to customers. I'm super curious what the revenue mix looks like. I would suspect a lot more of it is is either buying coffee in the stores, you know, in liquid form or buying the beans in the stores. And then the the online subscription business is smaller. But interesting to think about that, too, because that then you start to think about it still not an Internet company. Like, I'm really sick of the fact that, like, oh, we sell it online and like people subscribe to it. Like, that's a slight business model shift. But ultimately, like fixed costs, distribution costs, like still not an Internet business. But then you at least drift closer to something where you're like, okay this is different than you know, uh, all the brick and mortar stuff that exists today.
0: We've posed some questions here and, and I think, uh, you know, James uh, Freeman and, and the blue bottle team were, were very clear what side they came down on of those questions, which was that blue bottle can't be a public company and maintain its ideals. And also <laughs> that it's not an internet company. Um, but I, I do think, you know, uh, in terms of, where i come down on this like i'm not sure that that's the dichotomy that makes sense right like i think about apple right like an apple store and a blue bottle store are are, are eerily similar um and apple is maintaining (laughs) what an old uh,
1: what apple store used to be anyway like (laughs) i think uh, the the days of believing that an apple store is a sparse simple uh location is is far over well, no, but,
0: but you come, you, you walk into an Apple store and they're you know, you can count on, well, you used to be able to count on both of your hands, the number of products they were selling there. It's more now, but it's certainly not relative to the number of square feet that they have. The number of products that they're selling is, is way smaller, but that has been able to, to scale, um, and touch just about everyone in the world, um. You know, whereas, as you point out, and you know, Blue Bottle has forty stores.
1: I'm uh, curious to get into acquisition category because I'd I'd love to get your take here. Do you want to you want to dive into that now? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, uh, I'm curious what you think. The thing that I have bolded in my show notes of our categories—people, technology, product, business line, asset, or other—is product because they are this. You know, it's a really fantastic product. uh, A lot of care in every cup. Um, truly differentiated in terms of, you know, once you have it, you kind of want to go every day to that. You don't want to go for anything less. Do I think Nestle could create that? Probably. Like, do I think they could create that for way less than they paid for a blue bottle? Certainly. Would it be successful? Almost certainly not. Like, I I think ultimately what they've bought here is the brand and the prestige around the brand. And they're gonna try and leverage that into all sorts of well, I think they're going to try and leverage that into all sorts of interesting um, ways of, you know, using their supply chain to um, to really amp up the growth rate of Blue Bottle, to potentially sell other stuff in Blue Bottle, to sell Blue Bottle coffee everywhere where they have store space. But they, they bought brand here. They bought coolness.
0: Yeah. See, hmm, I was going to go business line um, because... Yes, there are all those things that Nestle could do with Blue Bottle, but there's such a risk if they do that they destroy the brand, right? And I don't know that Nestle, uh, I don't know the full ins and outs of their corporate structure, but I don't think they have anything quite like Blue Bottle, which is like a, you know, a, a physical retail experience. So this is something kind of new and different for them, but I think you also You know, raised a a great point that, like, this is a business line, but it's not one with a ton of crossover. Like, there's crossover potential, but there's so many landmines in there, you know.
1: I don't think I really considered that that much. The question is, I mean, if it's a business line, then it should be freestanding. And that means that you should believe that the summer future cash flows on this thing are going to be $625 million. That's a lot of growth.
0: Yeah, yeah. But... You know, on the on the other hand, so they, uh, well, I'll, I'll foreshadow, we'll get into this more in tech themes, um, but this really is kind of like, it's, it's so interesting. Like this is a like Facebook style acquisition being done by Nestle, right? Like they're keeping the team separate. All the rhetoric is that, you know, they're going to let Blue Bottle just keep doing its thing. It's a separate board. The employees and James, the founder, still own a significant chunk of the company, you know, separate from Nestle. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Is it going to work?
1: Well, I mean, so what are they going to do? The, the, the question is, like, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to try and put Blue Bottle in more places? Because I believe Nestle can probably do that. Like, if if that's the goal, and, you know, it's, it's really just uh, create a ton of the exact same Blue Bottle experience in more places, yeah, they can probably do that. And a big capital infusion is a really good idea to do that. Yeah. But I, I was really well, this and, interesting... Uh, you know
0: i mean nestle has more can be a much larger capital provider than even you know however much money blue bottle could raise as an as an independent company you know even they raise 75 million from fidelity but like nestle could could write that in a week you know
1: right right so th- i was reading this interesting Quora post that's like it gives a good order of magnitude for um what uh individual cafes sell and i i feel like i should have gotten the starbucks comp because that would have been better but this uh this says in australia 60 percent of cafes sell between 200k and two million dollars per year so let's say that uh, on the revenue side you know that's that's two million dollars of revenue per store that that blue bottle generates like that's a lot of stores to get to 625 million dollars
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, it's not just revenue. I mean, back to your your point a little while ago. <laughs> this is not a tech company like, you know, let's say they have 40 stores <laughs> doing 2 million cost, of revenue in COGS. each. Right. Like, OK, they had 80 million in revenue. Like, let's let's say. But, you know, the, the margins on that are not software margins.
1: Right. 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 I did read one interesting piece that that I thought was pretty interesting um, that said that basically Nestle Nestle had to do something in coffee because they have dominance in Europe with Nespresso's. And by the way, I have a Nespresso machine. We have one at work. These things are freaking awesome. 70% 70% of the single-serve market in Europe is Nespresso. And they tried to penetrate in the U.S. and completely lost to Keurig and Tassimo. Um, and they have less than 5% penetration in the U.S. on those single-serves. And so the question is, if they came out with a blue-bottle single-serve thing at home, you know, would they be able to, to win some of that back? And the reason that it's important is because across Nestle's businesses, their, uh, margins are about 15% and in their beverages, it's about 25%. So any way that they can, that, you know, make more of their business lines, beverage business lines, um, they can generate, you know, much higher margins. And, and it, this could be, you know, a, a huge missed opportunity if they have to forfeit the, the single serve, uh, coffee market in the U S as it just skyrockets in popularity.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So this is like the, uh, uh, this is bad, but like the, the, the right way to do the, the juicero. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, David, dude, I, I tried the other day just squeezing my Nespresso pods and they, they made amazing coffee on their own. I don't know what I paid the hundred bucks for this thing for.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, you can't do that
1: with coffee. So No. No, it is, you know, so let's paint this scenario. If it is a separate business line, like this is a totally new thing that may or may not work, which is a a leveraging of the brand into something that the, the brand may not be able to be leveraged into in the sort of single serve home thing. Like, would they pit Nespresso against Blue Bottle and have two divisions making similar things selling against each other? I mean, maybe it'd be the same division and they would just, you know, sort of relabel the Nespresso stuff.
0: Well, if, if Nespresso, and I agree, they really do make good single-serve um, coffee much better than, than Keurig's. But if they have such small market share here, maybe they just rebrand the whole thing uh, in the U.S. As, <laughs> as, as Blue Bottle.
1: Yeah, I wonder. And, you know, how much of a say do the Blue Bottle folks have in that? I mean, they presumably Nestle makes the decisions now and has the, the controlling interest.
0: Yeah. But again, remember, like, it's not a they don't own hundred percent like the blue bottle team still, you know, has a large stake. Like there's just a lot of complexity to this deal for, for so many reasons as we've been talking about.
1: Yeah. I like your assessment of business line. I'm curious. I mean, it is that for now. I'm curious to see what sort of integration we, we start to see.
0: I feel like we've talked a bit about what would have happened otherwise, but, um, you know, I guess if, if, Nestle hadn't come in and acquired Blue Bottle, uh, or, or and nobody else had for for a while. I mean, what happens? So like, Fidelity's sitting there on their cap table at a very large stake, and is you know they're not in the business of of owning you know shares in private companies for twenty years. Um, <laughs> what happens?
1: Yeah, I mean, presumably another Nestle would have to come along in some amount of time. I mean you can really see the dynamic here play out, right? Where the founders are like, we don't want to sell and they end up keeping all their shares and the, the you know, Fidelities are like, we need to get out of this business. Like we've seen great growth, but like, my God, we need a way to get out of this. You almost wonder, did Fidelity, you know, tee this whole thing up with Nestle? Well, and, and not just
0: Fidelity too. I mean, don't forget there've been VCs, you know, on the cap table here since 2008. Um, so almost 10 years and, you know, venture capital funds, you know, have a, Uh, have a life cycle. This is something that, you know, I think a lot of people don't really understand um, unless you're, you know, an insider in the business. But the typical life of a venture capital fund partnership, limited partnership is is 10 years. And what that means is that from the time the fund was raised until, you know, whatever that date is, again, typically 10 years, like you're supposed to wind up the whole fund and give all the money back to investors at that point. Now, in most cases there will be provisions to extend the life of the fund that almost always does happen but still then as the the VC you're having to go back to your investors every year and keep asking for an extension and and eventually they're going to get tired and until you know
1: and and then what happens David this is a good little vC 101 like what if the LPs say no and there's still you know uh, shares owned of these private companies that haven't got liquidity yet
0: well, what would happen then is those shares would get distributed out to the investors in the VC fund, the limited partners, and that would be really bad for the company too because now all of a sudden instead of, you know, X, Y, Z, VC, say, you know, let's say uh, uh, Index, right, who who led the Series B in, uh, in Blue Bottle. So instead of Index as your investor and sitting on your board, now ratably all the in proportion to the those investors in index they all own like little bits of your stock now and you know they're in totally different businesses like they're not in the business of sitting on your board helping you grow you know they may have different liquidity time frames return hurdles uh it just turns into a, a nightmare
1: and so then you could have you know 50 100 200 new entrants on your cap table
0: Yep. Yep. And, and, and not just new entrants, but new entrants with wildly divergent, you know, interests.
1: Right. 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 And, you know, presumably at some point that starts to starts to trigger some things that need to happen with the SEC because you have so many shareholders. Yeah. Now, the, the rules
0: jo- have changed on that a little yeah. bit with the JOBS Act, um, but uh, but still
1: not no no bueno.
0: Yeah. No bueno. So, you know, I, I, I kind of think we talked about this before, but like, we're going to see a bunch of this in the coming years. Like if some of these companies don't get public or acquired, like there's going to have to be some sort of transaction that takes place and maybe private equity is a path. So that might've been one thing that might've happened otherwise. Um, you saw this with SurveyMonkey. So similar situation, um, the the company uh, was Dave Goldberg, Sheryl Sandberg's you know, late husband was the CEO, and he was adamant never wanted to go public, uh, but it had raised all this money, and so actually several times the various private equity firms came in and bought out the existing investors in and SurveyMonkey, and then sometimes, and then even larger private equity firms came and bought out
1: right, the smaller private point, equity like, firms. The, that, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 there is a bigger fish for a while. At some point, they run out of big fish in the public market yeah. is where you need to go. <laughs> it,
0: it can't be turtles all the way down. <laughs> 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 there has to be a pool at the bottom.
1: <laughs> and, uh, oh, man. Yeah. I'm using that as the teaser quote for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, one other VC 101 moment. So uh, why not? So, of course, every day is, uh, is a day that goes by where it would be nice to um, have a return on your capital so you could invest it elsewhere. But why don't VCs more typically do an evergreen fund so they don't have these sort of artificial uh, fund vintage triggers to, to um, you know, force this to happen?
0: Well, uh, some VCs do. Uh, so like Sutter Hill is an evergreen fund. The thing about that though, is that you have to, everybody has to be aligned in the partnership, both the VC partnership and then the limited partners about wanting that. So all of the limited partners have to be able to say like, yep, we don't care about timelines and liquidity. Uh, but then even more importantly, you know, the general partners in the VC fund have to also be willing to say, like, I don't care about liquidity either. <laughs> and, um, you know, most VCs, uh, so, some are, you know, very wealthy independently or have been VCs for a long time and have gotten liquidity and aren't as motivated. But, but really, if, you know, if you look around the industry, especially in these multi-generational firms where the folks that are running, the show, or, or making investments now, maybe aren't necessarily the founders. You know, they're not. Uh, um, you know, they're not in a position where they can just indefinitely go without liquidity either. Um, so it really, it really, and, and especially you know, as a as a VC and investor in these types of companies, it's not like you know if the company is making generating positive cash flow it's not like they're dividending it out to you so you know whereas a if you're a founder of a company you can do things you can start to pay yourself a lot more um you know if there if there is cash flow you can dividend it out or you can do bonuses or whatnot uh none of that money comes back to vcs
1: (laughs) yeah yeah great point great point well thanks for uh for sidetracking there with me
0: (laughs) All right. Should we dive into tech themes?
1: Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And one, here's one that I don't know if it's actually applicable, but I've been thinking more and more about. Um, And I think what I'm going to do here is walk myself into a corner where I say, actually, this is not a tech theme for this episode, but um, the return of brick and mortar in a different way than it was used before is, is really interesting to me. Where you know, the, the story of the decade or the last two decades is, um, Amazon making, you know, taking 97% of retail growth, Walmart growing a little bit and everyone else shrinking and especially big box stores shrinking. And this return of kind of boutique retail where even the online companies, uh, Warby Parker, Bonobos, the sort of direct from internet to your doorstep companies are opening stores. And in many cases they're, they're doing the stores very differently. So like, you go to the Warby Parker store. You don't actually buy glasses there. You buy them on the website in the store, um, but you can kind of try it on. It's more like it's it's almost like a marketing expense, like a brand awareness expense, um, and a way to make the experience a little bit better. Now, as I said, I was walking myself into a corner. This isn't quite the case with um, Blue Bottle, but it is sort of part of this, you know, boutiqueification of retail away from the man.
0: <laughs> to Uh, invoke ben thompson a little bit like it is a little bit of aggregation theory in that what these experiences new retail experiences do have in common is they are a superior customer experience versus you know you are going to warby parker for one specific thing you're going to blue bottle for one specific thing um you're going to an apple store for a one specific thing like there there aren't thousands of SKUs just lying around on the floor and so as a result you can have a much better pure experience of of that thing in that store and as a result you can if you're able to get distribution now, this is where it breaks down a little bit in the physical world versus, you know, aggregation theory on the internet. If you're able to have distribution wide enough and you have that superior customer experience, you will win every time. I mean, if there's a, if there's a blue bottle next to a Starbucks, like I'm going to the blue bottle, you know, (laughs) but in the, in the physical world. And I think this has also been what you were talking about in the beginning of the episode, like blue bottles been valued. Like it, you know, is an internet company, but, but it's not like they need to have a store everywhere to, to do that. Uh, And that's going to require a ton of capital.
1: Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I mean, the way I like to think about internet companies being differentiated is, is they super low, if not zero marginal cost, you can have super high fixed costs, but you know, um, low marginal cost. especially, you know, not, not businesses like Apple that make hardware, but like internet companies as you sort of look around at those businesses, they tend to be winner take all. You know, Facebook is a winner take all business and Amazon will be a winner take all business and Amazon doesn't quite fit, but like maybe Amazon as the third party seller um, group kind of fits. So uh, the interesting thing here is like coffee, you know, coffee stores are not actually winner take all. Like despite the fact that Starbucks, you know, it's not just the internet that allows you to quickly saturate a global market. It's many other factors of our world today too. It's, you know, our ability to do logistics at, at mass scale, our ability to do single advertising campaigns at, at large scale, where you quickly make a brand understood by many, many people. So, you know, it's slower than if it were just just bits, because um, it's in the real, real world. But, you know, it, Starbucks, while expanding to a global market fairly quickly, I mean, 24,000 stores, it turns out there actually are segments and it's it's not something uh, a one size fits all for everyone to create the best experience when you're in the real world and maybe even when you're in software too you can't create the thing that's best for everyone under one single company
0: mm. well you can though if you're a marketplace right like and i think that's what amazon that's why amazon can be a winner take all business in retail because like you can buy the you know uh, I don't know. What's some trivial example, like, um, an iPhone dock, right? Like you can buy the, you know, $3 iPhone dock from China on there. Uh, but you can also buy the like $500 artisanal, you know, you can get your Starbucks and your blue bottle
1: on Amazon. Well, that works on a product perspective, but doesn't work in a physical experience perspective. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, Even if I could get exactly blue bottle coffee, like if I'm going to a Starbucks to get that, Like, it's not the same.
0: Yeah, right. So this is where, uh, you know, the analogy breaks down in the physical world.
1: It's kind of interesting. I mean, like, if you go back to a, a traditional version of marketplace, like, before it was this category of VC investable businesses, it was large square footage areas where multiple merchants were in a single place. And, like, Blue Bottle doesn't want to exist in a marketplace either, much like uh, Southwest doesn't want to exist in a travel aggregator. Like, I don't want to be seen around all that cruft. I want to be in my own little thing and separated from all that. So I I guess the tech theme I'm going with here, the theme I'm going with here is like some things are uh, uncramminable into these business models that are massive and winner take all and look super shiny from an investment perspective. And I think coffee may be one of them. Like Starbucks is killing it. They're doing great. But like, are they the answer for everyone? No. I certainly
0: agree with you in coffee as it exists today, but I'm thinking about like Airbnb though, right? Like, um, you couldn't, a a holiday inn was very different from a Ritz Carlton, right? Um, there were segments there for sure. But, but both of those experiences and, you know, both below a Holiday Inn and above a Ritz Carlton exist on Airbnb. A platform like that actually can, you know, address, if not the whole market, you know, many, many segments. Part of it's tied to maybe, maybe it's just the nature of the coffee market, but I think it is also tied to this, like, physical, physical nature of these businesses. Like, you can't, do the same with coffee right because the experience of sitting in a starbucks is very different from the experience of sitting in a blue bottle they can't kind of
1: coexist could could blue bottle um move down market at some point and open starbucks competitors and like there's blue bottle classics and then there's like blue blue bottle something new and what's interesting
0: Starbucks is doing this right with the roasteries. Uh, they're moving. Well, they're, they're going art market. market. Yep.
1: Well, I, and like, can Starbucks actually win over the coffee snobs? I mean, that's a that's a that's a tougher battle than like suddenly there being a four dollar latte that's available from Blue Bottle in a larger location that has Wi Fi. Like, then I feel like I'm almost one of the cool kids, and I have the product that I actually want.
0: Well, maybe the way they have to do it though is what we were saying earlier, which is through the single serve, um,
1: uh, packaged coffee and go through the home instead. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the whole, uh, who, who knows what, what direction they'll go, but, um, I'll, I'll put the flag in the ground and say, I just don't think you can, you can do a winner take all business, um, and, and create that, that a product for everyone when you have to think about, uh, um, cramming in the physical experience of it too.
0: I don't, I can't think of an example that is not an internet business that can serve everyone. Like Google can serve everyone and Facebook can serve everyone and Instagram can serve everyone and and Airbnb and Uber. Um, but but,
1: but I mean, even, even actually not Instagram and even not Facebook, like there's so many people that want to select into their social network because Facebook's too public for me or Instagram's too, mm, you know, limited or good point. I'd say we may be nearing. No, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Like the pushback <laughs> of this of the one size fits all, but um, in in some ways.
0: Well, okay. Well, maybe Amazon can, right? Like, who wouldn't buy from Amazon because it's on the environmentalists. Internet. Hmm. Environmentalists, maybe. Yep.
1: I mean, I'm I'm looking for corner cases in some ways, but um, I, do I believe that Amazon will be able to solve the problem of shipping products to environmentalists? Yes. Like that—that's a bet I'd make. Yeah,
0: but I think you're—I think you're onto something. Like it only works because you don't have to go physically shop at Amazon. Because before Amazon, there was Walmart, right? But like, there were whole segments of people that would never shop at Walmart, and likewise, you know, there was, um, you know, whatever high end equivalent of Walmart you want to pick that <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. Um, Target. <laughs> Target, <laughs> right? Well, Tarjay is sort of more. I think more mid-mark, maybe slightly upmarket, certainly from Walmart, but I don't think it's like, you know, the, the Neiman right. Marcus of, of, you know, big box stores, just about every demographic, unless, unless, as you point out, you have a environmental concern would shop on Amazon, right? Yeah. I mean, cause again, yeah. you can get your $4 iPhone dock or your $500 iPhone dock there.
1: Yep. They're getting there anyway. Yep.
0: All right. You want to grade? Let's do it.
1: All right, uh, you start because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, uh, this is tough. I mean, it's kind of like everything worked out here, right? Like investors got a nice return, especially the early investors. The management team and James, you know, certainly seems happy. I mean, they're they're leaving a ton of skin in the game, so they must be bullish on the future. You know, Nestle is getting potentially, well, they're getting a, a growing um brand there and, and a new business line to add but they're also potentially getting something that could really be valuable to them in terms of rebranding their nespresso a single shot uh market and that's a very big market but there are these like it just feels like this whole thing wasn't the right fit you know as we've had this discussion i think i, I give it a b right now because like this certainly was like a good outcome for everyone, but I just wonder if it was like the right path and what would have happened if maybe Blue Bottle had made some different decisions along the way.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't disagree. It does It does feel like the, the my biggest takeaway is with the, real, the successful acquisitions we've seen, when you really dig in, you start to see like the one real reason this deal got done. And, you know, with Instagram, it's like, oh my God, they can, Facebook can, unlock even more supply like an, even more ad inventory and push all of their advertisers into you know a, a crap ton more ad slots and not like, to mention oh, Facebook. Had that's an, what that deal is about and they
0: had an existential threat in losing mobile <laughs> well right. it was very right. clear what it was about
1: right um and you know there the, the, there's there's others like there's there's you see exactly what facebook or i'm sorry what disney wanted to do with marvel right like the, there's a there's the their business is yep. turning super valuable IP into dollars in eleven different forms, and boy, are they firing on all cylinders of of all eleven of those, pumping them into the Disney machine. And like, what I can't see here is like, what's the one reason they did this? Like, I I think I think it's probably a good idea. Like, it seems like a good thing for for Nestle to own you know, I can paint a story where the rebrand of the, the Nespresso makes lots of sense. I can paint a story where, you know, instead of growing 50% year over year and projected to grow 70% year over year next year, like they actually really turn it on and are able to do, um, you know, open lots more stores very rapidly because they've all this capital. But like, do, do I see the like one thing where this fits perfectly in and, and there's internal alignment within Nestle of how they're going to leverage this asset? Like pff, pff, I don't work there, but probably not like, I, I i mean i mean i think the I only dark
0: horse I, being being um the uh nespresso uh i mean that may yeah. just be a huge business and they needed a way to invigorate it
1: yeah thank you to the the quora um commenter who suggested that it's pretty interesting um so i'll go b minus you know may, maybe c plus but uh again i i think i've rated things that were way worse than this c's so i'll go b minus carve out Carve out. So, uh, I was on a a flight to, uh, to Ohio this weekend and had lots of free time, was clearing out my Instapaper and this really interesting thing. Um, I first heard about it like two years ago, the, the tulip mania story, there was a, a Dutch tulip bubble, Uh, where people were going insane for for buying tulips. And it grew to a religious fervor where people were paying unbelievable amounts for certain special types of tulips and highly speculative, you know, I'm going to buy this bulb and it'll it'll be beautiful in some number of years from now. And like total mania, right? The same way that we see bubbles that exist today. And it's kind of like the first macroeconomic bubble that people cite, and it, you know, theoretically, like, crashed the Dutch economy, and, uh, and there was, you know, incredible despair, and people lost fortunes, and all this stuff. And the interesting thing was, over the last few years, I've actually seen more and more of this story pop up in more places, especially in the, you know, technocrat sphere, where people love to wax philosophically about if we're in a bubble or not. There's even a, a movie coming out, I think it's Tulip Mania, um, or, or Tulip Fever, or something, that, that uh, um, like, this month... And the Smithsonian Magazine published a really interesting piece called There Was Never Really a Tulip Fever. Oh, I've heard about this. It was super interesting. Like this thing that's gotten quoted and quoted and quoted and like referenced over and over again. Like somebody wrote this book and did a bunch of research and tried to figure out like, okay, let's, you know. Who were these people that lost their fortunes? And as they dug into it, they realized, like, of course, there was over speculation here. And, you know, the people, um, you know, a lot of like very wealthy people put lots of money in and lost that. But it never actually affected the working class and it never actually destabilized the whole economy. And it didn't throw anything into like a tailspin. And the, it, it, it did not have these trickle-down effects that um, are so often quoted when wanting to compare a potential oncoming bubble or 2008 or 2000 to, to you know, this Dutch tulip bubble. And it's like totally fascinating of uh, analysis of why we wanted to believe um, that this, this mania created even more devastation than, than it actually did.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Relevant to yeah. uh, today's times <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 and there are some cool little takeaways in that and suggestions of why we do want to believe it, but I'd say I'll leave it to the the author who's way more eloquent at explaining that, so click the link in the show notes if you're if you want to check it out.
0: Cool. Uh, my carve out um, today is actually random seeming, but, um, is the iPhone SE classic. So I watched the Apple keynote a couple weeks ago. Um, we talked about it a lot on the HTC episode. It was really great. And, you know, coming out of it. Uh, so I've, uh, for the last three years, I've been a plus model guy. I got the six plus, and then I got the seven plus Plus. and coming about it. I just, I wasn't that compelled by any of the, the new hardware, like I see where they're going with the iPhone 10, uh, it's the future. It's amazing. But I was like, I'm not ready just yet because AR isn't like real yet. It will be in the next generation or two. And then I realized I was like, I was looking at the iPhone 10 and I was like, Oh, that's really, it is smaller. It would be nice not to have such a big phone in my pocket anymore. And then I like just kept looking at my seven plus and I was like, this thing is enormous. And like, I can't sit down with it. And like (laughs) for the last three years, every time I've like had lunch or dinner or gone out like I always put my phone on the table because I can't have it on my body and so I was like you know there's such an active like liquid secondary market for Apple products I just sold it on eBay and I got an iPhone SE on on eBay for way cheaper and I am I'm sure I will upgrade in the next generation but I'm really happy to be back to having a small phone I never thought I would say that
1: this just in venture capitalist decides not to partake in, in new high-tech <laughs> technology and rolls back to the stone Ages.
0: <laughs> That's me. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> no, it's so I mean like I'm always like, all my whole life I've been a bleeding edge adopter, but you know, the form factor, I just kind of realized, again, maybe I'll probably change in a couple years, but I was like, it's just nice to be back to, um, you know, being able to have my phone in my pocket.
1: I'm envious. Man, You're so right on that. I think were it not for these cameras and um, sometimes when I want two-handed use of a larger keyboard um, I miss the crap out of that form factor.
0: Swipe glide typing though on the, the uh, Gboard, the Google keyboard is pretty good. You know, and and I think this is it for me. Like I'm I'm not much of a photographer. I don't take that many pictures whereas I know you do. So it was like the appeal of the cameras for me is AR in the future and I just don't think it's there yet. So I'm going to enjoy my, you know, one or two years, probably one year with a phone in my pocket.
1: Well, David, enjoy your non-bionic phone. <laughs>
0: I know I'm <laughs> going to miss the bionic. <laughs> are you, uh, are you, are you going for a 10?
1: I mean, if I can get one, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dual wield and have, uh, have my um, my browser open and try and order online and have my Apple Store app on my phone open and see if you know maybe I'll end up with two. I don't know, but uh, I I I bet I'm I'm into Q4 if if not or early Q1 next year. Um, well, but that's we'll, this we'll is the how thing about
0: get. about Apple products, right? Like, if you are an iOS person, like there is so like the secondary market is so liquid like yeah you have to pay some transaction costs but it's like crazy it's not really not that much. much and they
1: keep their value incredibly
0: they keep their value not like you can swap out like for really not much money um, in terms of economic impact um it's kind of crazy
1: it is well a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode zoom info if your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. Well, um... I think that's all I've got. Do you have anything else?
0: That's all I got.
1: All right, listeners, if you aren't subscribed and want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. Um, If you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes. Um, Other than that, join us at uh, Acquired.fm. You can join the Slack. um, And uh, that's all we've got. Have a great day.
0: See you guys soon.